You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Psalm chapter 136. Psalm 136. We've been in the book of Psalms for several weeks now, just kind of teaching through um, various Psalms, not, not really a set order for what for the ones that we've chosen i told you last week it's kind of been uh week to week god just leading me and uh, leading me by his spirit as to where he wants us to go uh, each week and so just encouraged each week to kind of see where god's going to lead us and where he's going to guide us and direct us in regards to um, where we will land uh, with each psalm um as you're turning and kind of getting your notes together um you do see the qr code on the screen if you want to connect that with your phone you can access our sermon slide notes um, both for today and uh, previous sermons as well. I want to encourage uh, our members, if you haven't had a chance to complete your committed giving, we've kind of have wrapped up budget season and are really starting to make plans for our resources for the remainder of the year. So if you're a member here and you've not completed your committed giving, we'd love for you to go on the rim and complete that. Um, and just excited to see how God's going to use our resources this year. Your faithful giving in the past, uh, especially over this past year, has really enabled us to uh, to give and to serve even within our our local family here. So um, it's great to see Beth back today. We've been able to to help care for her both in what you've done individually as families taking food to her, but then even uh, being able to help support her with the amount of time that she's missed from work. Um, we're able to do that right now with Chris um, Ellis, who's who's not here today, but sends uh, his his love and care and, and gratefulness for um, what we've been able to do as a church as well. Lauren had the chance to go by and see them this morning. And uh, they're just so grateful for what you've been able to do and give. Um, and, and so just encourage you to, to prayerfully consider how to give to this church this year. You know, we, we also talked about how um, we wanted to include the Long family in our giving this year. That's a family that was with us 10 years ago when we started. God felt or God led them and they felt that he wanted them to move to, to Snowbird and to get into full-time ministry up there. And they sent me a email this morning just in response. Ben and I had the chance to call them a couple of weeks ago and just let them know uh, where we had landed as leadership and how we wanted to use our resources this year. It says, uh, Dear Adam, elders, and the extended Sovereign Hope family and friends, we just wanted to send a note of thanks to all of you for choosing our family to support this year. We could not have imagined that 10 years ago when we planted Sovereign Hope together that it would lead us to being in full-time ministry here at Snowbird, especially later in life. Sometimes we sit and marvel two years later at how radically different our lives look now. The Lord called, prepared, led, provided, and equipped us for a pouring out we didn't know we were capable of. We have seen what missions looks like in having and needing less in order to do more for the glory of the Lord. We are thankful for the body and all of you supporting missions, period, whether overseas or in a tiny Appalachian town. More personally, the support you're going to give us is timely. We laugh to ourselves sometimes, truly in awe, that just a few dollars an hour, if it were broken down, has sustained us. But isn't, it, um, isn't that how gracious the Lord is? So having a little something more, no matter the amount, will be a little extra air in our lungs as we see his provision through your support. You all have already been our biggest supporters and encouragers from, from the second we said we are headed to North Carolina. Whether handing us a car, taking us to dinner, or checking in with us to pray for us, our time here is better because of you. Uh, we love you all and are so thankful for our roots being right here at Sovereign Hope. It will always be home to us. Um, so those are just some ways that, that your money, your giving, allows us to serve others that have uh, come out of our family and are, and are giving and serving over, um, you know, outside of this context now, but then even being able to, 
to care and love and support people that are right here within our community. So I encourage you to continue to faithfully give as the Lord blesses and provides for you this year. Psalm chapter 136 is where we're going to be today. Last week we were talking uh, from Psalm 121 about the, the help and the care that God gives to us. Where do we look for our help? Where do we look for our care? And we talked about that last week, um, how believers are provided God's ongoing help that keeps them safe from all the threats of this world because not only does God provide round-the-clock care for his people, he also rules and reigns over every threat found in this world. And so uh, we can slumber, we can sleep because our God doesn't right? And so he takes care of us. He eliminates the threats that would seemingly press in on us. He, uh, he lords over them. He rules over them and guards and protects his people. And we're going to see more of that today in Psalm 136. I'm going to read for us uh, the entire chapter, and then we'll dive right in. It says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever the sun to rule over the day for his steadfast love endures forever, the moon and the stars to rule over the night for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt for his steadfast love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them for his steadfast love endures forever, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm for his steadfast love endures forever, to him who divided the Red Sea in two for his steadfast love endures forever and made Israel pass through the midst of it for his steadfast love endures forever but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever to him who led his people through the wilderness for his steadfast love endures forever to him who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Our summary sentence for today, the loving acts of God seen in the creation of the world and the redemption of his people give us assurance that his steadfast love endures towards his people even today, giving us reason to praise him by trusting him. The loving acts of God seen in the creation of the world and the redemption of his people give us assurance that his steadfast love endures towards his people even today, giving us reason to praise him by trusting him. For our kids, Bible stories help us see that because God loves his people today, just like he loved them in Bible times, we should sing praises to him. We're going to see how this psalm is meant to point us to the past 
to see God's faithfulness in the past and how he has cared for his people in the past and how that culminates to our understanding of his provision today. Um, How we lean into the past to see who he is so that we better understand how we can trust him and therefore praise him today. And there are several Bible stories that are referenced here that we'll dive into a little bit more. Um, It seemed appropriate in in light of Valentine's Day that'll be tomorrow, uh, looking at a passage that deals with love. I know for those of you that are on social media, you'll see uh, a plethora of posts over the coming hours and days about uh, different spouses maybe highlighting who their spouse is and why they love them and, and, the, and the, the care that is shown to them. Uh, it, it's a time where uh, this holiday becomes just a focal point of, of expressing your love, highlighting love, uh, talking about love. And today we're going to see God's love communicated to us, an enduring love, a steadfast love. Obviously, it doesn't take a, a genius to look at this passage and see what the theme is, right? It's repeated over and over and over again. In fact, 26 times we see this phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. We see this echoed in Second Chronicles um, when the temple is being dedicated by Solomon. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 7, verse 3. It says, When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 6. The priests stood at their post, the Levites also with the instruments for music to the Lord that the king David had made for giving thanks to the Lord. For his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. And we also see this in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire, as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the theme of Psalm 136. It's God's love, and it's a love that endures for all time. It does not end. Um, What you see in this uh, chapter is really, I think, three sections. Verses 1 through 9, there is a focus by the psalmist on the creative acts of God, ways that we see God's love in the ways that God creates. Then we're going to see in verses 10 through 22 the redemptive acts of God, how he saves his people, how he delivers his people, and how we can see his love in those acts. And then in verses 23 through 26, for the psalmist, it was present day understanding of God's love for his personal situation. So he's looking to the past. He sees God's creative acts. He sees God's redemptive acts. And he's, he's leaning into those things and saying, okay, God's love, his enduring love, his steadfast love is seen in these things then it translates for his personal present experience. That God who has shown his faithful, enduring love is showing it to me right now. All right, and so that's the kind of the three sections of this chapter, the creative acts of God, the redemptive acts of God, and then these present sustaining acts of God that we'll see as well. The idea here is that everything from God's creation to the climax of redemption is to be seen against the backdrop 
of God's love. Now, depending on what translation you're using today, your phrase, your repeated phrase, may look a little bit different. Um, I jotted down some of the more common uh, translations, maybe, um, and some of the, the ways that those translations choose to word it in, in their uh, translation. Uh, so the Christian Standard Bible says, uh, his faithful love endures forever. The ESV, which I read to you, his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, the New American Standard, his loving kindness is everlasting. KJV, his mercy endureth forever. Uh, the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a, a version that Bush introduced to me uh, a couple weeks ago. I think it's about a year old, maybe, maybe a little bit older than that, uh, put out by uh, some of John MacArthur's uh, people. Um, his loving kindness endures forever. Uh, God's faithful love lasts forever. And then I included the message, which I wouldn't classify as a translation, uh, more of a paraphrasing of God's word. Um, but, but I like what it says, too. His love never quits. Um, these are different ways of translating what's really a difficult concept to communicate in human language. Um, we, we've seen it already in some of the Psalms that we've examined. It's the idea of God's covenantal love. Um, you'll remember in Ephesians 3.18, maybe the reason that it's so hard to find the words to describe what God is trying to communicate is because it's a love that's so hard to comprehend, right? Ephesians 3.18, Paul is saying, I'm praying for you as Christians that you'll be able to understand, to comprehend the height and depth and width of this love, right? It's just, it's hard to package it into human language how God loves, how he shows his love and the everlasting nature of that love. Um, it's a faithful love. It's a forever love. A faithful love, a forever love. It's a steadfast love that endures forever. And there's, there's two key aspects to that. One, he will never stop showing love as a loving God. Okay, so when we say steadfast love enduring forever, the idea there is that God is love and therefore will never stop being a God of love. Okay, so there's that aspect of his eternal demonstration of love is that he never stops being a loving God. But then there's also the eternal aspect of his love will always continue because he will always continue. So he's always a loving God, and then he's an eternal God as well. So his love is steadfast, and then it's also enduring forever because he as a deity, he as God endures forever. So there's two aspects that we understand there about his love. It's a faithful love because he never stops showing love. And then it's a forever love because he never stops being God. He will never stop showing love as a loving God, and he will never stop showing love as an eternal God either. So let's jump into these three sections and see this steadfast, enduring love that never quits, how we understand that, and then how it translates to our experience today. Number one, we filter God's creative acts through his enduring love. We filter his creative acts through his enduring love. And we're going to see four things here in these nine verses. Number one, he's a good God which demonstrates his love. He's a good God which demonstrates his love. We're told to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. He's a good God. So when we see him being a God who loves, who demonstrates his love, it flows from his goodness. He guarantees that our experience with him 
and our experiences from him are good, meaning that we have great comfort in knowing that we can come to God and experience a good God. And we have great comfort in knowing that he who, who is sovereign over all of our experiences in life promises us that he works good for his children, right? So he is a good God because he guarantees that when we experience him, it's good. And the experiences that flow from him are good as well. This word for good appears over 700 times in the Old Testament in relationship to God. Look what commentator Alan Ross says. He says, this word embraces everything that is beneficial for life, pleasing to life, and harmonious with life. God is good because of what he creates, and what he gives is all good. You remember when Adam kicked off our series in Psalm, from Psalm 34, that, that phrase that's found there is that if, uh, to taste and see that the Lord is good, right? So here we're seeing in Psalm 136, if you have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness, praise him for it. And then the idea there would be is that if you haven't tasted his goodness, you need to. You need to taste and see that he is good. We give thanks to him for being a good God who guarantees that all of our experiences from him and with him are good as well. But number two, he's also seen as a sovereign God, which enables his love, right? He's a sovereign God, which enables his love. So he demonstrates his love through the goodness that he gives to us. But then he's also seen as one who is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The idea here is that he is supreme over all authorities in our life. He is supreme over all authorities in our life, those that are good and those that aren't good, right? So we may experience a level of goodness from other relationships in our life, right? Uh, Spouses, family members, friends, uh, these individuals that show great love and care to us. We, We understand Uh, better who God is through people like that in our life who show kindness and mercy and, and enduring love towards us because they are imaging God well in our life. But even as they attempt to do that, they fall well short of God's goodness and his enduring love, right? He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He is supreme over all authorities and all relationships in our life, both good and bad. Deuteronomy 10, 17 talks about this as well. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. I mean, those are, those are two things that are so crucial to a good supreme being, Right? For somebody to really be in a position of leadership, a position of authority, for them to really be good for all that experience him, he's got to be the type of individual who, who does not show partiality and can't be bought off. Right? You, you may have experienced authorities that are the contrary to this, that they show partiality. Or you may have experienced authorities who you know have been bought off. They've been paid, they've been bribed, they have been, they have been manipulated to use their power for the good of somebody because money talks, right? So when we talk about God being good, he's not just good for those who have the most money to bribe him towards their goodness, right? He's a God who's not partial. He is a God who cannot be bought, 
right? He is a good God. He is a sovereign God, which enables him to love, meaning that he can be a God who's good and loving, but if he's not in control, he may be prohibited from being able to show his love and goodness to us. But because he's the God of gods, because he's the Lord of lords, it enables him to love the ways that he wants to. You can't help but read that phrase and maybe connect it with Jesus in Revelation 19, 16, who comes riding in at the end, and he is proclaimed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I failed to mention this earlier, I think. Um, Psalm 136 is real similar to Psalm 135. There's some parallels there. It's kind of like what we saw in uh, Psalm 111 and 112, how they, they kind of worked well together. I chose not to do both because they're a little bit longer. Um, but Psalm 135 has some real similarities, and I wanted to point out to you uh, verses 15 through 18. It says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Here, the psalmist is pointing out these other gods or these other lords that we may be tempted to trust in. These gods that we construct, these gods that we maybe vote into power, these individuals or these, uh, these objects that maybe we would be prone to trust. He, he cautions us here and says, by, 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 by following these things or by trusting these things, you become like what you trust. I don't know if you've thought about that before. You become like the objects or the individuals that you trust. When you put your hope and trust in that individual or that person, you tend to become like that individual or that person. You see this sometimes with uh, candidates that, that one is putting their hope and trust in politically. They start to become sometimes like that political figure, right? Uh, which, is, which is an encouragement to us because the idea would be, okay, we're supposed to become like God, right? We're supposed to image him well, conform to the image of his son. Well, how do we do that? Well, it would seem then that the more we trust in him, the more we hope in him, the more we would become like him. Because the psalmist in 135 warns us, if you set up these other things in your life, these idols, these objects, these individuals, you put your trust in them, you will become like them. But we serve the God of gods, the Lord of lords. We put our faith and trust in him and we become like him. He's a sovereign God, which enables his love. Number three, he's a miracle working God, which empowers his love. Man, it takes his love to the next level. Give thanks to him who alone does great wonders, verse four. He's good. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. And he does great wonders. It empowers his love because he shows his love in ways that we don't anticipate and don't think possible sometimes. I put in my notes, all the wonders of life are sourced in him. All the wonders of life are sourced in him. All right? I love my wife. I love my kids. I hope it is a picture of a steadfast, enduring love. All right? Uh, it, it certainly falls well short of what God is able to give to them, right? Uh, particularly in this area, because I can love my wife and I can love my kids to the fullest of my abilities, but what I do not possess is the ability to love them in a miraculous way. 
I can't show my love with miracles. I can't show my love to them with wonders. Like my capabilities, uh, they stop at some point, right? My abilities to provide for my family can only go so far. God provides his love for us in ways that, that endures, but it's a way, in ways that are wonderful as well. He's a miracle-working God, which empowers his love towards us. And number four, he is a wise God, which guides his love. He is a wise God, which guides his love. He is intentional in how he operates to ensure his love is experienced. Look what it says in verse 5. To him who by understanding made the heavens. Not just to him who made the heavens, but to him by understanding made the heavens. Creation is birthed out of the wisdom of God, right? So not only does he put on his, his power and display in wonderful ways to create everything that we see, he does it intricately by weaving his wisdom into the things that he creates, into the ways that he creates, right? The psalmist begins to describe to us the wisdom of God. He, he spread out the earth above the waters, right? He separated the dry land from the wetland. He made the great lights, particularly the sun to rule over the day, the moon and the stars to rule over the night. He creates with understanding and with purpose. He shows himself to be both the God of heaven and earth and the God of day and night, which communicates to us that he's the God of space and time. His creation is constructed with wisdom and understanding. He, he created the earth. He separated the waters. He, he put the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky to to, to, to provide what we need creatively. He did it with all of the wisdom possible. He's a wise God, which guides his love. Now, again, we're seeing who God is. We're seeing his love through his creative acts, right? So he creates in good ways. He creates and, and, and does things in sovereign ways, which demonstrates his love, enables his love. He, he goes beyond what would be capable in creation by working wonders, which extends his ability to love. It empowers his love. And then he's a wise God, which means he doesn't just love ignorantly. He, just doesn't, he doesn't just love emotionally, Right? His, his, his love for us is guided with the, with the perfect wisdom that he possesses, which sometimes contradicts what we think he should do for us in love, right? There, there's plenty of times where we think God should show me love in this way. And we can be thankful that his wisdom is, is greater than our wisdom. And he loves in ways that are good for us and best for us, even when we don't fully understand how that looks. He's a wise God, which guides his love for us. We filter God's creative acts through his enduring love. Number two, we filter God's redemptive acts through his enduring love. We filter God's redemptive acts through his, uh, through his enduring love. The psalmist switches focuses now from the creative God of Genesis and then moves into the redemptive God of Exodus. He says to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Jesse and I were talking before church last week, and he asked me the question. He said, if you could observe any Bible story in, in Scripture, what would you choose? And he said, you can't choose the resurrection. And he told me one other that I couldn't choose. And, and I thought about it just briefly, and I immediately responded, and I said, the parting of the Red Sea. Like, like 
that, that's the one that I want to see. Um, I've always been amazed in reading of that story. Um, my, my, my draw to it is, is the power of God, the, the overwhelming wonder of how that so contradicts the, the ways that water works, right? For it to be standing still, to be divided in two with the ground being dry for his people to walk through. Like, that's fascinating to me. Um, these verses here in 10 through 22, they're real similar, like I said, in verse, uh, chapter 135, Psalm 135, verses 8 through 12, look what it says. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. You read throughout the Old Testament, and it's not uncommon, whether it's in the Psalms or other passages, for God's people to recount the Exodus and the conquest that comes after that. Um, and so I was asking myself this question as I was studying uh, yesterday. Why are the Old Testament writers enamored with Exodus so much? Why do, they, why do they find such fascination with the plagues, with the Red Sea, and then the king conquest that come after that? Right? Are they, are they like me? Do they just, uh, from, from oral tradition and then reading the, 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 um, the books of the law, do they read that story and just think, man... That would be the one I would choose, right? They had far less, obviously, to choose from at that point. But so many of these Old Testament writers write about the Exodus. They write about the Red Sea. They write about these kings being defeated. And so I was just wrestling with that yesterday. Why? Why do they get drawn to that so much, right? You don't see Old Testament writers necessarily uh, writing about Daniel in the lion's den. Why do they write about the Red Sea so much? Well, as I was pondering that, I couldn't help but think, up to this point in the Old Testament history, think about if you're in Egypt, right? Your, your family history for the last 400 years has been Egypt, right? So you grow up in Egypt and you're being told of life before Egypt, right? There was this, there was this uh, crazy uh, tradition passed down to you of how God created. Because remember, Genesis, and Genesis isn't written yet right? Moses is going to write Genesis later. So you don't have the book of Genesis to just crack open. Like all this stuff, probably oral tradition that's being passed down. So you're hearing stories about creation. You're hearing maybe about Cain and Abel. And then the, then the, then the focus starts to turn to uh, our, our forefather, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are things that God did to their families, right? Maybe you, maybe you hear the story of, of Abraham and Isaac, and he's supposed to sacrifice his son, and then God provides the, the, um, the animal for him to sacrifice instead, right? Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're hearing about Joseph and, and how this is how he ended up in Egypt, because Joseph was banished by his brothers, and, and somehow God uses that for good, what was meant for evil, and, and our family was saved from famine, and now you've grown up here in Egypt and, and your, your knowledge, your experience of Yahweh, of the God that we worship, is really relegated to a few historical accounts related to individual people, right? Like, like I've heard that God loved Abraham. I heard that God loved Isaac. I heard that God loved Jacob. I think the Old Testament writers are enamored with this story so much because this is the initial act where God's enduring love moves from individual experience to a people group, right? 
So if you're growing up in Egypt, like you've not necessarily uh, experienced the enduring love of God in ways that you're now experiencing it with the Exodus and the Red Sea and these kings that are falling before you, right? Like all you've heard, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there were some wives that were provided. You had a womb that was kind of dead and now babies are coming out of it. Like, like, like this is kind of what you know about God and his provision. And then boom, all of a sudden, God starts creating his people, not just working with families, but now there's a people that he's building. I think they're enamored with this story because this is the initial act of love shown to Israel as a people. It moves their understanding of God from legends and Abraham's family to now he's our God. Now he's our God because there's been like 400 years of silence for all practical purposes. Was God working and moving in their life? Yes, absolutely. But did they have direct ways of seeing this is how God shows enduring love to us that have come from Abraham? Not up to this point. They don't have that experience yet. And now God comes in and he's working plagues and he's rescuing them from slavery and he's splitting the Red Sea and he's providing for them in the wilderness. I mean, now they're all of a sudden saying, this is our God, not just a God we've heard about. This is our God, right? Uh, Diana, um, Adam and Alex's mom, she's, she's a great grandma. She's a great grandma. For years, so my sister marries into this family and normally in that type of case, my kids would not be the beneficiaries of her as a grandma. Our family functions a little bit differently and we've got grandmas that cross over families and act like grandmas, even though they're not technically grandma, right? So I'd heard how great Diana was. Then she moves closer here to be with family and my kids start to become the beneficiaries of having her in their life functioning like a grandma, right? So you've heard about Diana, now, as a family, we're experiencing Diana as a grandma-type figure in our life. She's awesome, right? But it moved from stories about Diana to now personal experiences that we have about her as well. That's what happens for the children in Exodus that are coming out of Egypt, right? It's, hey, we've heard about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, that's our family, but, man, that was so long ago. Like, I don't really consider them my family, right? And now it's like, hey... This God that I've heard about, he's working for my family, not just Abraham's family, but he's working for my family, right? And so I think that's why this is such a big deal to these Old Testament writers. The author goes from the creation of the world to the creation of Israel, this favored nation, right? So let's see what he says about this. Number one, God controls our enemies, right? He controls our enemies. We're told that he struck down the firstborn of Egypt, Why is that important? Well, if you know about the story of Exodus, there were nine plagues prior to this and none of them captured the hearts of the Egyptians to let my people go until this one happened. This act of taking the firstborn of Egypt triggers the release of Israel unlike any of the other plagues. You can read about it in Exodus 11 and 12. Exodus 12, 36 specifically says, the people of Israel found favor in the Egyptians' eyes and they basically gave them anything they asked for. That's God controlling our enemies. That's God taking the enemies who were the slave owners and the slave owners saying, slaves, ask anything and I'll give it to you. Just get out of here. Just get out of here. He controls our enemies. He controls the hearts of our enemies. Number two, he delivers us from our enemies. 
He delivers us from our enemies. He divides the Red Sea, and his creation experiences him differently in the midst of it. Think about this. He struck down the firstborn. Um, He brought Israel out from among them. And then with his strong hands and his outstretched arm, he divides the Red Sea in two and makes Israel pass through the midst of it, but he overthrows Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Right, So he splits the Red Sea. Israelite and Egyptian witness this miracle, but they experience it way differently. Right, Israel walks through on dry ground. They are saved and preserved. Man, to, to, to have been an Israelite kid who's heard all these stories, and now you're walking... And you're seeing water on both sides of you. Just an unbelievable story, an unbelievable picture that would have been. His enduring, steadfast love. He didn't forget about us in this 400 years. He's still working. He's still active. He's keeping promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's for Israel in the Red Sea, but he's against the Egyptians. And his great arm strikes fear in the hearts of our enemies. Look what Exodus 15 Coming out of that experience in the Red Sea, Moses singing a song says this, Exodus 15, 16, terror and dread fall upon them, talking about their enemies, because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Meaning, my enemies can't touch me because of your great arm. They can only do what you allow them to do. He delivers us from our enemies. Number three, he guides and protects us from our enemies. He guides and protects us from our enemies because not only are we told that he strikes down the firstborn in the, in, of the Egyptians, not only does he bring Israel out of Egypt, not only does he part the Red Sea and allow them to escape, but Psalm 136 goes on to say, He led his people through the wilderness. That reminds us that our God not only saves us, he sustains us. Remember that idea of being shaded from the day and the night that we saw last week in Psalm 121. I mean, they have to live this, living in the wilderness where the sun comes up and it's hot and there is no shade, there is no protection. Then the sun goes down and it's freezing cold and and you're struggling trying to find food. He is their shade in the wilderness, and every step of their wilderness wandering is intentional. I mean, I love Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18, because in that passage it says that God could have taken them a shorter route, but for their protection, because he knew they would get scared of the Philistines, and not just say, take us back to Egypt. It says, you would have gone back to Egypt. It says he takes them a different way. Takes them the long way, takes longer to get there, But by doing so, it protects them, protects them so that they don't grow fearful too early in the process. He guides and protects us from our enemies. He leads us in the wilderness. And he does the same for us as people today. Because not only does he save us with the gospel, we've been talking about this, he keeps us with the gospel too, right? He sustains us so that we can stay faithful to him. He brings us through this wilderness of life. And one day we will enter the promised land with him. But until then, he sustains us just like he did his people. Number four, he defeats our enemies. He defeats our enemies. He overcomes the obstacles or hindrances to us experiencing his good provision. So we talked about him being a good God, and he wants to give good to us. Well, he wants to give the land to these people. But there's other people occupying the land, right? This is where the wonders of God is so important because these obstacles, these hindrances, these kings 
can't keep him from giving to his people what he wants to give to them. The Bible says he defeats these famous kings. He struck down great kings. He killed mighty kings. He defeats the famous to increase his fame. Right? This is what happens when uh, like maybe an up-and-comer in the sports realm overthrows somebody great. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away from my normal football analogies, and I'm going to give you a wrestling analogy. Okay? So way back in the day, before it really got way inappropriate probably to watch some of that, I used to really like to watch wrestling, okay? And uh, I remember junior in high school, my football coach took a group of us to the uh, Georgia Dome to see this up-and-comer wrestler named Bill Goldberg, all right? Bill Goldberg was a favorite of mine because he played football at Georgia. Uh, He just kind of embodied, like, what I liked about football in the wrestling ring, right? And, and he was undefeated at the time, but he was really more known amongst like the Georgia faithful because he was from Georgia. And then in July, I think it was July 6, 1998, he gets a title opportunity against Hulk Hogan, right? You may have never heard of Bill Goldberg, but you've probably heard of Hulk Hogan, right? Goldberg's fame increases greatly after that night because he beats Hulk Hogan. Now, obviously I know wrestling's not real, right? It's all staged, but What a great opportunity to be in your hometown, the state of Georgia, Georgia Dome, and Bill Goldberg, who everybody in Georgia loves, upsets the great Hulk Hogan. Man, his fame skyrockets in that uh, entertainment industry. God's fame, which again, think about this, it's relegated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Because his people, his covenant people have been in Egypt and there's been relative silence for 400 years. Well, then fast forward to the children of Israel with Joshua going into the land. I won't take time to turn there and read it for the sake of time, but in Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, remember what Rahab tells to the two spies. She says, oh, we know about your God. We know about your God. Here's what we know about him. He split that Red Sea open, which was 40 years ago, right? Because remember, they had to wander for 40 years. So 40 years. There's not a whole lot of things that we talk about that happened 40 years ago as though they just happened and we're scared of it, right? Hopefully 40 years from now, we're not talking in terror about COVID-19, right? This lady is scared to death of the God of Israel because she says 40 years ago, he split the Red Sea and our people are terrified. We've also heard about Sion and Og who he overthrew and we are terrified of your God right? Like his fame, God's fame increases because he's beating up on famous kings. He defeats our enemies. He overcomes the obstacles. Look what Charles Spurgeon says. How could these, thing, these kings hope to succeed when even mercy itself was in arms against them? These kings had no chance because the steadfast, enduring love and mercy of God was up against them, right? These kings didn't stand a chance, just like Hulk Hogan didn't stand a chance, right? God's fame increases. He defeats our enemies. We filter God's redemptive acts through his enduring love. Lastly, number three, we filter God's present acts through his enduring love. Because here's what happens. This happens every week, right? We sit here, we worship, we, we, we listen to a sermon, we read, and we say, yes, I believe that. Yes, God is good. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, God is wise. Yes, God is in control. And then too often we walk out those doors and we get hit in the face with life. And we start grumbling and complaining about our circumstances. We grow anxious and feel anxiety about our circumstances. 
we, we feel weary and tempted and we yield to sin, right? Like we hear these things on a Sunday morning, we, we celebrate them, we, we get excited about them, and then we walk out and it's like things change immediately. It's like, yep, that's how, that's how God used to work or that's who God used to be. But like in the present day, when we walk out these doors, is this the God we experience? This creative God who only gives good to his children, this redeeming God who saves his people from their enemies, for us particularly, saving us from our sins, saving us from our temptations, saving us from death. We worship the God who is our savior and sustainer and then we get hit in the face and we, and we panic and we start acting totally different. I want, you to be, I want you to hear this. The God who created in Psalm 136 is still creating. The God who delivered in Psalm 136 is still delivering. And the God who sustained in Psalm 136 He's still sustaining. And that's the experience of the psalmist here. Number one, the God who has always remembered his people is remembering you today. The God who has always remembered his people is remembering you today. Verse 23, it is he, this God who the psalmist has just recounted, this God of the past, this God who created in Genesis, and this God who saved in Exodus, it's he who is remembering us in our lowest state right now. It's he who's remembering us now. His love endures forever. He remembers you today. Number two, the God who has always rescued his people is rescuing you today. Verse 24, it's that God of old who rescued us from our foes. His steadfast love endures forever. He is the redeemer God today, just like he was in the book of Exodus. And number three, the God who has always provided for his people it's providing for you today because he's the creator God. It says he gives food to all flesh for his steadfast love endures forever. Remember, he provided food even in the wilderness for his people. In times when his provision seemed unlikely or impossible, the God of wonders showed up every night and left manna on their doorstep every morning. Be thankful for this God. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Our application as we leave. See the history of God's workings with Israel as the basis for the theology of what we believe about how he interacts with us today. And let that lead you into a response of doxology whereby you praise him and trust him. Right? So the history of what we know about God is the basis for our theology, what we believe about God today. Right? So what I believe about God and how he's going to provide for my family. Right? We saw last week, he watches over our comings and our goings. Our family's going to leave today and we are going to go to North Carolina. We are going to go to Chattanooga, Tennessee this week and then we are going to come back. And I believe and trust that my God will be good and will watch over and care for my family in the comings and the goings. Why? Because he's always done that for his people. Started with a group of, 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 of families, Abraham's family, Isaac's family, Jacob's family, and then it grew into a nation, a people. A people that I'm grafted into, right? Because the New Testament tells me if I'm, if I'm a child of faith, I'm a child of Abraham now. So my theology today, how I believe God interacts with my family is based on how he's been inter- interacting with his people for all time. And that leads me into doxology, which is simply just a response of praise. Right? I praise him for the God that he is. I worship him and trust him for the God that he is. Don't just hear these Bible stories and think, man, that's cool. That's good history. 
or that's cool, wonderful things that he's done. Man, take the history of old and apply it to your heart, to your mind, right? Like see the history of how God has provided for his people and say, that's how he provides for me today. That's how he cares for me today. He's rescuing me from my enemies. He's providing for me just like he provided for the children in the wilderness. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we trust when we leave today. When we walk out these doors and we get hit with life this week, that's the God who goes before us. That's the God whose steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for these words. We thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for preserving history in such a way where we can lean into it, where history can, can drive our theology. The things that we believe about to you today are based on what you have shown yourself to be in the past. Help that to be true as we leave today, not just within this past hour of being here, but as we leave today, God, help us to continue trusting you. Help us to see that you're the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Help us to see that we are loved by you and that love will always continue. Lord, help us to to be empowered to praise you, to trust you in response to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.